Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today, I have a very special guest. Really been looking forward to this um, as a fellow content creator. Marty's a, Marty's a legend, man. Marty started it all. Big inspiration to me, uh, to me personally. So uh, very humbled to have him on the show today. But before we jump in, I want to give a quick shout out to the company that powers the show. Shout out to Swan Bitcoin, best place to stack sats, built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They incentivize dollar cost averaging and self-custody. What are you waiting for? Visit swanbitcoin.com today. Anyways, I want to bring uh, Marty on stage. Marty, uh, happy to have you, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, yeah, I think you, you were, you know, you were one of the, one of the, basically pioneers really cuz really before the 2017 2018 era uh bitcoin content was extremely sparse on the interwebs yeah we have to give a shout out to vortex jimmy song and others who held down who held down the fort uh with the bitcoin show i forget what their network was called but yeah that was the only or at least the show that that i watched the most every sunday was the bitcoin do show and uh, yeah, it was weird getting into the content game in the beginning, Bitcoin focused, but it's uh, it's been a lot of fun over the last five, almost six years that I've been doing now. So a lot of things have changed for sure, at least uh, specifically during the um, the last bull market. It, it's almost as if a lot of it got professionalized, you know, the increase in, in production quality, that's for sure. So what was that like? You know, because I feel like in the beginning it was uh, it was a lot like more gunzo. It was just like you know, let's just spin it up and talk about Bitcoin. Let's see where this conversation leads us. Now you have these productions, all the bells and whistles, and all that stuff. So, how was that like from your perspective? I mean, from my perspective, I feel like we're still uh, lagging behind uh, the higher end production shows. But no, it's been great to see. I've always been an advocate of the more content, the better, the more people out there producing content around Bitcoin, educating people about Bitcoin, the better. Uh, each individual has a different way of coming to an understanding of Bitcoin and uh, relating to different produ content producers with different ways of expressing ideas. And so I think overall, it's been incredible to watch and extremely happy that it's happening because it shows that uh, there are a lot of people dedicated to making sure that the rest of the world understands Bitcoin and, um, you know, I mean, better production is just better for everybody at the end of the day. Absolutely. So one of the things I've noticed, Marty, you know, specifically as time progressed, right? And I think that all Bitcoin content creators, like they kind of start in this, there's going to be a, you know, there's going to be a tech podcast. It's going to be about Bitcoin. And then slowly but surely, you slowly start to seep into, belief. before you know it, you start to talk about more macro world issues because you understand, or at least maybe I'm talking about myself personally, where um, you realize how much of a difference Bitcoin is going to make to the world and not talking about greater issues other than Bitcoin kind of confines you in a space and then you develop as a content creator, right? Initially, it was like, no, so we're here to talk about Bitcoin. 
And then you're like, and then you start talking about all the things that fiat money has broken in it in of itself. And there's just so many topics to talk about. And then you, you know, before you know it, you're talking to, you know, other people that completely perhaps they're they're not even involved in Bitcoin yet, but you're looking at them and you're just like, you know what you're talking about? Bitcoin fixes that. Um, so, you know, perhaps I'm talking about my own experience as a content creator, but have you seen that as well? Do you, do you, do you, have you seen yourself branching out into other subject matters that perhaps aren't necessarily really Bitcoin centric or Bitcoin related? Yeah, certainly. I mean, so I have a, an economics background and worked at a hedge fund for a couple of years out of college. I was always uh, enamored with macroeconomics and, and talking about those topics. So we started incorporating those early on because obviously Bitcoin is a potential uh, usurper of the reserve currency of the world sort of fits into that macro picture, but more and more throughout the years, it's a combination of, recognizing that these things are tangentially related to Bitcoin and to me as an individual wanting to scratch an itch of curiosity. But uh, energy has been a big topic on the show for many years. And that started after I jumped down the mining rabbit hole working at Great American Mining and started to become more familiar with the energy sector and uh, how Bitcoin was getting integrated into it and how it has its own uh, fiat problems, particularly with subsidies and this weird ESG narrative that has popped up over the last five years. And then uh, obviously we've done a lot of content with uh, ranchers and farmers and uh, Texas Slim at the, the beef initiative uh, to, to highlight uh, that sort of parallel economy that is very similar to Bitcoin in the sense it's grassroots and it is a stronger system if it's sufficiently distributed uh, geographically. And then um, <laughs> another personal itch that I've been scratching is uh, the more taboo topics uh, like the having Whitney Webb on to talk about uh, everything going on behind the scenes with intelligence agencies and the World Economic Forum and these demons that exist out there uh, and then as COVID uh, lockdowns and uh, the vaccine rollout happened, I was again individually curious about exploring those topics in a way in which the mainstream media refused to. Um, and so I decided to, to bring people on to talk about those topics as well, just because nobody in the mainstream is talking about it. So yeah, TFTC, the interview series has evolved uh, over the years. I, I like to think we always had like a half technical, half macro view on Bitcoin to start. But as it fell down the mining hole, rabbit hole, energy came more, became more of a prominent topic on the show. And um, the, the Marty Jones and me just felt compelled to, dive into the more taboo topics as well. It's interesting because, uh, so you call yourself Marty Jones. Uh, my audience calls me Nico Jones. Um, we, <laughs> we, exp we definitely get into those topics a lot the way we have different vocabulary for them. Um, 
my my producer who's who's in the back right now he calls them the uh the uh high level parasites i call them the monetary demons that's my personal favorite um but yeah i mean how could you not cover those topics specifically because like the way that i view this marty is like this really is kind of like a peaceful revolution and you're looking at this, you know, what the World Economic Forum really is. Like if you have the Bitcoin conference, the World Economic Forum is like the continuing conference of, you know, this party of all where all the central planners hang out and they try to, you know, central plan to put it very, very oh. gently and nicely. Um, how could you not talk about those topics? And then I think the importance of the rise of citizen journalism where individuals like you and I, the internet has empowered us and has given us the ability to um, communicate directly to an audience and also gives us the ability to circumvent the legacy gatekeepers of information, right? With, you know, traditional media companies that are supposed to be doing the job that just individuals have just been, do been doing for them. Um, and I think it's just because they've just been bought by special interests, how could you not talk about those topics? Because if not us, then who, right? If, if there is no one that's willing to at least provide a counter narrative to all the BS that they're spouting about El Salvador. And, you know, you mentioned the pandemic and all the things that YouTube doesn't like that we talk about, who else is going to talk about that? Right. So I, in, in an essence, in, in a way, I, I feel like it is, it is, it is a responsibility for ethical content creators to bring up those topics, talk about those topics, because other than maybe Tucker, right, they're not really brought up. Like it's never, it's not talked about often. It's, it's, it's almost like it's, you know, swept under the rug. And I don't know if you feel about this way, Marty, but a lot of things that have happened in the last two years, man, there are serious crimes against humanity, dude. Like there was a lot of evil. There was a lot of wrongdoing that has happened that I think that these people are just pretending and hoping that this just goes away. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what your take is on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. I think it's ludicrous that we're not allowed to openly talk about this stuff without fear of retribution from YouTube specifically. Twitter's gotten better, but YouTube... I'm currently still in YouTube timeout from the last strike I got for, for talking about the vaccine and the adverse effects that it has caused many people. But yeah, in terms of like, so the, the whole like citizen journalism thing, like I don't view myself as a citizen journalist. Like I've always, I mean, some people will say that when I approach like TFTC and the newsletter specifically, yeah, maybe rabbit hole recap. It's a weekly news show where we try to like journal everything that went on. But when it comes to like the bent and TFTC, I see it as more as like a cathartic release just to get the crazy thoughts in my mind on the paper and then out to the world. Not necessarily to, you know, maybe there is uh, a point of trying to educate people about this stuff, but more importantly to me, I view it as a way to like let other people know, like you're not the only one thinking this stuff like there are others like us out there and then just because again i'm not a journalist i'm not doing in-depth research or actually going out and hitting the streets to to like whippy web 
is, uh, for example, but I do have uh, my, my thoughts and feelings about what's happening in the world. I do think there is a silent majority that feels the same way and just for some reason or another doesn't feel comfortable expressing those feelings. So I view my platform as a way to let those people know like, hey, you're not the only one that's thinking this way. Yeah, I mean, and and that's really the beauty of it, right? Is that, you know, I think I think individualists hate labels, right? You know, that's kind of the, you know, because you want to perceive yourself as, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that, you know, you prefer. But you can't deny, Marty, that you are covering things and maybe not because I don't have a journalistic background. I don't think. Do you have a journal? Do you have a, a formal journalistic background either? Okay. Well, but we we still. I think the internet has empowered us and has given us the ability to at least talk about it in in an open, honest, or at least we believe we we perceive it that way. And I mean, you could make the argument that Joe Rogan is a podcaster. He's not a journalist. But is he providing more journalism than these, the, the the corporate media institutions, right? So that's that's a deep rabbit hole. But I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe the old perception of what a journalism, what a journalist should be like. I think that you know, heading into this new age, the information age, whatever you want to call it, I think uh, I think it's really anybody with a camera and a microphone that's just willing to air out their thoughts. Yeah, no, I can definitely see it that way. Now that I think about it, if you get into like the etymology of journalism, what are you doing? You're journaling, and I literally journal on my website every day. <laughs> so maybe I am a journalist. But yeah, no, I think it's important. It's an important trend. And as we saw throughout COVID with the big tech platforms like Twitter, before Elon took over Facebook, YouTube, whatever it may be, they did not like individuals like yourself and me putting those ideas out there. And so I think um, even though we're doing this today and um, we have been doing it for a while, uh, like there are concerted efforts to curb what we're doing. Um, and so that's why at TTC we're trying to inoculate ourselves from that future attack by, by using more sodden software stacks like goes to BTC pay server to serve our content and monetize it, um, which we're hoping to package up and get out there to other individuals like ourselves who are, who are putting out this type of work uh, in a world that, that seems to be getting increasingly censorious. A hundred percent. Do you think uh, they'll let us broadcast in the gulags? <laughs> No, they will not. We will have to, uh, <laughs> we have to get armies of, of pigeons to sneak and sell them so that we can tweet and, and live stream to the world. Man, I'm bullish on those on those Marty bent on those bents, bro. Uh, transmitted <laughs> via pigeon messenger. <laughs> those will be those will be some good ones. It never gets that. We're not going to go to the gulags, and we're going to win. Yeah, we're going to win. Of course, I agree. The gulags, I- the, the gulags are not coming back. <laughs> so one of the jokes that I make with Opti all the time is, you know, and Marty, I'm a, I'm a first generation American. I, um, 
originally I came from, uh, my parents came better said, and I, I grew up, I was very privileged enough to, to grow up in the States and Miami specifically. Um, I came from Venezuela and I saw what the outcome of this, to put it nicely and gently of this collectivist mindset of, of where it, you know, where that leads and where I see the States heading is in that direction. Um, the hope that I have is really Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is where I'm like, okay, you know what? If, if we didn't have Bitcoin, we'd be screwed, right? Because this is just going to continue to, you know, head down this direction. Um, but I think that the adoption of Bitcoin, I'm more bullish of it uh, because, you know, it's game theory. I think it's going to be more embraced by individual states. And I think the federal government is really what is, I, I don't think they're going to react so kindly to it. Um, that is, I don't think they have been. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And I know that, you know, your home base is in Texas. What do you see on the Texas level, on the state level? How do you see them reacting to Bitcoin? Is it ever a possibility? You know, I always say, I'm like, look, as soon as one state puts Bitcoin on its balance sheet, it is game over. It's done, done and dusted. Uh, is that a possibility? How are, how are uh, Texas policymakers or regulators, or I hate using the word politicians, how are they seeing that? Is, is that something that you're involved in? Or are you kind of like the mindset of like, yo, this system is just so broken beyond repair. This is about really focusing on the individual and really getting the individual to, to open their eyes to Bitcoin and more of a grassroots type of inception, uh, you know, strategy versus a, you know, we have to try to convince the politicians. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's dual facet. I mean, I think it definitely starts with the individual at the grassroots movement, but then it moves up to that political level. Uh, and I think as Bitcoiners, we should ardently like convince our local government officials, whether it be at the county, city, state level, to embrace Bitcoin. And I do think in Texas, that's certainly happening, obviously. There's been a big boom in the mining industry down here in Texas, and so far, so good. I would argue there's a lot of concentration of hash rate and a few mega mines, which isn't ideal, but I think overall, the reception of Bitcoin mining in Texas has been good. Um, and then in terms of other policy initiatives in Texas, I'm not involved directly with all of them or any of them, but I do think there has been a lot of material positive progress to convince politicians, whether it be at the state level or or senators like Ted Cruz at the federal level um, that that have been sold on Bitcoin that, that should bode well for Texas. I mean, Texas historically has uh, put Texas first uh, above the, the federal government. And I think when it comes to Bitcoin, it'll be similar. And I think this is a trend, a positive trend that's been emerging over the last few years since the COVID lockdowns. You have Texas, Florida, other states asserting their autonomy against the federal government. So it would not be surprising the least bit if you, know, you see a state like Texas or Florida 
openly flaunt federal regulations against Bitcoin if they do materialize in the future. So yeah, I think uh, going back to your question, um, I don't think we need to convince politicians. I do think it's uh, a positive outcome if we do, but um, convincing politicians begins with convincing enough individuals to, to make the argument to, to those politicians. And so, yeah, it starts at the grassroots level with individual Bitcoiners sort of gathering together wherever they may be, putting together uh, a plan or a pitch to the politicians and showing them, hey, look at how the mining industry is uh, helping your tax revenue in these certain counties. Hey, look at all the companies coming to your state because of the the tax um, uh, the tax environment here. You're starting companies, Bitcoin companies, because you're you're a state that is treating them well. You should continue treating them well. So yeah, I think uh, that trend is going in the right direction here in Texas. I think it will continue to go in the right direction, but you've got to stay vigilant. Um, don't depend on the state. I think it's an added benefit if you can convince them. Um, but it's never a wrong conclusion. So always go individual first. You gotta convince as many people as possible to put Bitcoin on their personal balance sheets and use it in their businesses and in their everyday lives. And then the politicians' hands will will be forced at some point once you hit a critical mass. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So what do you think about, and the reason I'm asking you this is I think what I've seen from Bitcoiners is, oh, they're just, they just don't know enough. You know, they're not educated on the subject matter. You know, us that simply believe that it is nefarious, it is on purpose, where you have politicians that are openly hostile towards Bitcoin. You had the infamous bill that was introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren, and she tried to make it, you know, bipartisan, getting a Republican senator, Senator Marshall, to uh, basically force just absolutely absurd. And I think it's unenforceable, but at least I think what they were trying to do is slightly move the Overton window, number one. And number two, I think in the unintended consequence of introducing that bill, they really showed their cards. They really showed how they felt about that. And uh, basically the bill would force software developers in the United States to register with the government if they wanted to write code for Bitcoin which is absolutely absurd. And of course, they took advantage of the um, FTX SBF blow up to uh, justify the introduction of, of that type of bill. So the question that I have for you, Marty, is do you believe it was nefarious? Do you believe that they knew exactly what they were doing? Or do you come from the school of thought where they just, you know, these are just old, you know, senators, they just don't know any better? Um, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think she, Senator Warren definitely knew that if passed, this bill would significantly curb adoption of Bitcoin and development around Bitcoin and did have nefarious intentions by presenting it. Uh, she does not like Bitcoin. She wants to kill Bitcoin. But with that being said, I mean, if you look at her history of proposing bills, this seems to be a par for the course for her. It seems more of a, an attention-grabbing uh, action than anything. Uh, she has done this many times in the past with other 
bill is not d directly related to Bitcoin, but she likes to make a big splash in the news and draw up a bunch of uh, fervor uh, to get attention. Um, but if you look at her history of actually getting these bills passed, I think it's like one in 300 and something like 97 or something like that. So I'm not worried about the bill actually getting passed, but yeah, it does definitely uh, lift the, the veil of her true intentions, which is to stop out Bitcoin because she is a statist at heart that wants to control everything she can. And obviously nobody can control Bitcoin. So of course she will want to stop that. So let's talk about, you know, worst case scenarios. And I think both of us, you could, you could make the argument that, uh, We've uh, our career decisions are tied with with the industry. Um, mm -hmm. Would do you believe and do you ever foresee a and, I, and you know what? And I spoke to Matthew Pines about that. I've spoke to Matthew Pines about this, Jason Brett, David Zell. And I always ask them the same question. Do you think I'm asking you the same question, Marty? Do you think that a um, 6102 order would ever be something that would happen in the United States specifically if, cause like, look, the reality is, is that the U S federal government gets a tremendous amount of power from weaponizing the dollar. Right. And through via U S sanction policy, office of foreign asset control, et cetera, et cetera. And Bitcoin Specifically, if it's widely adopted by countries that are open or, you know, the U.S. government better said or is, considers hostile to the United States, it would be a way for them to circumvent that U.S. sanction policy um, in a very effective way. Uh, do you think it would we would ever reach a point where the U.S. federal government would do something so radical as to, you know, outright ban the possession of Bitcoin by American citizens, like a 6102 order. Um, do you think that's that would ever be a possibility in the U.S.? Certainly. I mean, I've done it before. Why won't they do it again? But if they do, I mean, I, I've tweeted this out and talked about this a lot. Like, they're not getting my Bitcoin. I'm not going to stop using Bitcoin. I think there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of other people who think the same way uh this is when we need good old-fashioned civil disobedience uh, to come back and hopefully there are enough individuals who have bitcoin uh that they actually control they possess the private keys and you can openly flaunt that you're sending bitcoin back and forth to yourself and there's nothing that they can do to stop it um and then on top of that like i yes they can certainly try and it would not surprise me if they did try but I think we live in a day and age in a particular point in time where the marginal return on these uh, on these tyrannical actions by the federal government is, is significantly being reduced. Uh, I think you we are witnessing a epic collapse in confidence in the institutions, particularly the federal government and the alphabet soup agencies that sit below it. And so I think. Um, with the lockdowns, uh, the vaccine rollout, the Twitter files exposing that the FBI is essentially controlling uh, speech on the social media platforms, uh, look at energy policy, look at monetary policy, everything that's happening 
with inflation, I think it's becoming glaringly obvious. Obviously, you have um, the 10 to 20 percent of people who are pure status or just need authority to tell them what is true and what isn't, who are never going to be convinced. But I think the silent majority of people are pretty sufficiently pissed off that if push came to shove and the government tried to do this, it would just say, fuck you. This is, a, this is a step too far. You've already fucked with the money in my bank account, the completely debased. Um, I'm not going to let you mess with this. And I'm hopeful. People think I'm an idiot. People think I'm crazy for believing this. But I, I do think that if that did come and there was a good concerted effort to convince people that civil disobedience was the most effective way to, to basically quash that attempt to, to stop Bitcoin proliferation in the United States, that it could be successful. Again, I bring this up every once in a while. People think I'm crazy, but maybe I just have more hope in uh, the, the American spirit that is a bit dormant, but it's still there in, in the bellies of a lot of people. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, you know, at least we'll, we'll be in the gulag together, Marty. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> oh man um yeah no but i i feel the same way and um what a crazy crazy time do you believe in the in the fourth turning theory or, or do you believe that we are in a fourth turning yeah i mean whether or not it's the fourth turning as described in the book was it neil howe um by neil who knows whether the cycles are exactly as described in his book, but I, I think it's undeniable to recognize that me and you, I mean, I'm a millennial, I was born in 91. We were born at this inflection point in human history with the dawn of the, the internet age, digital age, the information age, whatever you want to call it. And it's uh, forcing these changes on the world that humans have never dealt with particularly the pace of change um and so with that change there's definitely going to be a power struggle as the incumbent system tries to to hold on to the power structures that existed before the information age and um yeah i definitely think we are living through this period of uh massive change uh combination of technology uh demographics generationally uh, messing up the money like a perfect storm going back to the previous tangent that's why i think the conditions are sort of ripe for this environment of civil disobedience where people like our age are going to stand up and say no like you 80 80 year old geriatrics aren't going to tell us what to do with our future you guys are two feet away from the grave <laughs> give, us, give us control and stop fucking up our lives yeah 100 percent, and uh it's interesting because the the militantness, you know, I always say Bitcoin or slavery. Um, the I think that we I think inherently we know deep down inside, like, man, like this is what's the future ahead of us. Right. The future, you know, what they propose is um, a life of CBDCs. You won't own a gas stove, uh, eat fake meat. Uh, do what you're told or we'll shut your bank account. And the other alternative, and I think 
people are asleep to that. Like people don't really understand that those are really the only two alternatives in the future, right? Because that's the direction that fiat money and state money is going. Like they are hell bent on implementing these CBDCs. I don't think they'll be able to implement them without coercion, without some type of force that I don't think they'll ever be able to match Bitcoin's incentives. But that's exactly, you know, the the route that we're going through. But why is it that, you know, the average, the average everyday person, in a way, they're still asleep, right? It's really the Bitcoiners and we're kind of look like we kind of, to be honest, like we kind of look like maniacs, dude. Like we're, we're like, look, Bitcoin or slavery, this is what's going on. And in a way, sometimes I feel like we're, we're in an echo chamber, right? It's like things have to continuously break for people to really wake up to the fact. I think it obviously helps, you know, the, the, the collapsing confidence in all these government institutions that people, tr you know, trusted for decades include, you could add media institutions into that mix, right? So I guess the question that I have for you is what are your thoughts on CBDCs and why are normies still so asleep, man? What's going on with that? Well, I think normie, to answer your second question first, I think normies are still asleep. I think they're waking up, but I still, uh, they're still mostly asleep because their lives haven't been disrupted enough even but i think going back to like people are waking up i think the lockdowns were a big disruption of people's lives that woke a lot of people up uh, to the fact that these governments are very orwellian and um, do not make the best decisions at every given point in time um, people need people react to stress so uh, lockdowns create a lot of stress woke some people up you compound that with the inflation that has ensued from the opening up of the economy and the effects of all the money printing that went down during the lockdowns. And that's beginning to materially affect people and beginning to wake up like, how the hell is a carton of egg? $10. Um, people are beginning to question how come I can't get baby formula as reliably as I used to. Like, where, where is this? Where has this gone wrong? Um, and what was the first part of the question again? I completely forgot. Oh, what yeah. are your thoughts on CBDCs? Oh, CBDCs. Um, the CBDC, I mean, yeah, China's implemented them to some success in some provinces. I just think from a technical perspective, literally like writing the code and I don't know, you can argue we already live in a CBDC world. Like if the government wanted to, they could just go to our digital bank accounts and do what they want. They seize funds and freeze bank accounts all the time. It's just adding a few more features to that. Um, I think a CBDC in the U.S. is unlikely. The Fed, many Fed officials have come out and said that they, they don't even recommend the CBDC. It doesn't work. And I think that's because they work on behalf of the big commercial banks here in the United States. And if a CBDC is ever implemented and forced on the populace, the commercial banking system gets uh, cut out of that equation. So I actually think you have uh, an incentive war happening where, like, I'm not a big fan of the big banks here in the United States, but I think they'll actually be a huge hurdle to CBDC ever getting implemented uh, because they get cut out of the equation and all of their 
profits and revenues go away almost immediately if the CBDC ever materializes. So I think we're actually, uh, we've got two evil forces that will fight each other to the death over this at the benefit of Bitcoiners. We'll just be able to be like the bond meme where the, the commercial banks and uh, those trying to force the, the CBDC on Americans will be fighting each other and we'll just be building Bitcoin uh, slowly in the background and uh, people will continue to adopt it. But yeah, CBDC is extremely scary prospect. I definitely will not live in a world of CBDCs. I will not use the CBDC. Um, but I don't think it's likely here in the United States. Could be wrong, but I think greed will get in the way of that. Uh, greed on behalf of the central or the commercial banks. Yeah, so it's kind of like the enemy of your enemy is your friend type of, exactly. type of situation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of the things, at least it's frustrating, right, where the reality is that right now, very few merchants accept Bitcoin. Um, there's also the, you know, the tax implications, specifically for larger transactions. And, you know, they have this super just bullshit law, uh, legal tender, just forcing people to use the currency, forcing using, forcing people to use a currency that steals from them, essentially. Um, I mean, is that something that, like, it, 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 is that an inevitability? Like, it, it, do we do, it, does it have to, do you believe, like, it, it has to escalate to a point where we have to push for Bitcoin to be legal tender, like a situation like El Salvador, or to be fully embraced? Because the reality is that, you know, human beings like convenience, like conveniences, right? And you can't deny that it is inconvenient to use Bitcoin specifically as a means of payment in in the United States. Like, I'm not, you know, obviously with Bitcoiners, it's like, yeah, bro, here you go. But, you know, for you're going to CVS or, you know, you're going to one of your favorite restaurants, right? You know, the reality is that a lot of merchants just find it as an inconvenience to accept something like Bitcoin. How, how do you see that playing out? Well, first it plays out by making it easier to accept Bitcoin. So things like strikes integration with NCR at self checkout counters, um, that'll be big for the ability of large retailers to, to accept Bitcoin or to allow their customers to pay in Bitcoin, they don't necessarily need to uh, hold it on their balance sheet. But I think slowly over time, they will begin to. Um, so that's the first thing, just making it easier for these merchants to actually accept Bitcoin. Love BTC Pay Server, BTC Pay Server user. Myself, that's how we receive all the Bitcoin at TFTC at our company. Um, but expecting every merchant to spin up a BTC pay server and implement it in their point of sale system is probably uh, not going to happen. Uh, so people like Strike and integrated with NCR, Square, obviously Cash App has been an early mover in Bitcoin. Jack Dorsey is a massive advocate of Bitcoin. I would not be surprised if they begin to turn on Bitcoin receiving capabilities for their point of sale system and that will unlock tens of millions hundreds of millions of merchants overnight to be able to receive bitcoin and then once you get to that point 
in terms of like tax burden and um, uh, the, the legal ramifications of legal tender laws, I think it gets to a point where it's just simply, it's like the Nick Zabo, think of the Zabo's idea that what you have to do to get these technologies widely adopted and then force the government hand is make them too expensive to enforce. So you get to a point where the ability to accept Bitcoin as a merchant is as easy as toggling uh, a button on the back end of your your point of sale application uh, and then you open it up a million people begin spending Bitcoin. Uh, the Yes, there may be de minimis tax laws in place, but at a certain scale of individuals actually using Bitcoin at these merchants, it just becomes too expensive to enforce the tax law. And so you essentially just have this scenario in which like people are just like, we're using this. Yeah, of course, some people will, um, will inevitably get caught up in the net and uh, get, maybe get audited by the IRS, but hopefully enough they actually pay their taxes and they, they do it correctly and um they can survive those audits without legal ramifications but at a certain point it's going to be literally impossible for the government to enforce these tax laws if, if enough people are using bitcoin of course that depends on adoption usage but i'm, I'm confident that will happen uh, especially when you take into consideration the the state of inflation and the growing distrust for government. Um, there will be bumps in the road, but I think overall, at the end of the day, it will get too expensive to enforce these types of laws. Am I running the show now? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think Miko <laughs> fell off. Um, <laughs> he got rug pulled from Restream. So The, re uh, the Restream rug pull. The restream rug pulls. Let me see. He's texting me right now, but uh, let me see what's going on with him. I can uh, I can go off the cuff here. Yeah, yeah uh, dude, just just rip it for a moment while I try to get him back in. Okay. No, these ideas may seem radical too. People are like, oh, you're openly flaunting, uh, like going against the U.S. government, but at the end of the day, the government has proven to be evil, corrupt. They don't really care about you as an individual. They care about their ability to take control over your life. And you know, like Nico was saying earlier, there's a bunch of people who still have their hands heads in the sand and um, are willingly going along with the government. Again, I think that that tide is changing. And I do think we need to get back to the revolutionary spirit that this country was founded on and civilly disobey. That's the most important thing, civilly disobey, peacefully disobey by simply sending and receiving Bitcoin transactions. And so um, I do think we need to make civil disobedience a thing. People need to engender mentalities of not being afraid of their government. The government is supposed to work for you, it's supposed to represent you. And it's become abundantly clear to me at least that the government not only not represent us, it is actively harming us and making life materially worse off. And so if you have an avenue to opt out and to peacefully disobey their evil orders, uh, which Bitcoin provides, then you should do so. It is your civic duty. I 100% agree. And it's interesting because once we started having these types of conversations, looks like Restream rug pulled me. 
Um, so Opti, thanks for holding it down. But uh, this, this, uh, I don't know what happens, Marty, but tend when we tend to have these types of conversations, some type of def- technical difficulty <laughs> tends to pop up. <laughs> Oh man, but speaking of civil dif- di- disobedience, that's the beauty of Bitcoin though, right? Is that it's like it, the civil civil disobedience is just opting out. It's literally just taking your Bitcoin, put it into cold storage, living your life. And I love what you mentioned in the beginning about, you know, I love Texas Slim. I've had him many times on the show, right? It's this idea of 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 sovereignty. This, you know, Jeff Booth calls it decentralization versus centralization and I, I agree i think we're 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 i think learning right that the the path forward is personal responsibility it's like i think we've gotten here because people have con- whether it's the you know the outsourcing information outsourcing food outsourcing money right and i think that just you know <laughs> has frankenstein into this monstrosity that you know the personification of it like the the example of it is uh is the world economic forum the cantillionaire conference right um barney did you know that the world economic forum was founded in 1971 i did i did <laughs> klaus henry kissinger got together so we need to uh <laughs> we need to begin putting together a forum on on world economics. But yeah, again, it's become like, especially this year, I mean, all the, all the clips that came out, all the panels, like people are extremely hypocritical and it's becoming glaringly obvious. Like shout out to the rebel news guys who were, uh, who were asking actually hard questions to these world leaders and uh, CEO of Pfizer, uh, Larry Fink as they were walking through Davos and small like, ex- examples like that where they're able to go there and ask people the questions that they should be should have been asked for for many years now but the the lapdog corporate media just refuses or doesn't even think about asking and it's like a death by a thousand cuts every every clip of them being unable to answer genuine questions that that should be answered uh, and then getting up on stage and uh, after flying private jets in to switzerland and uh trying to um that's what i'm looking for trying to um lecture the rest of the world on (laughs) climate change and their energy consumption which is very obviously hypocritical and more and more people are waking up to that and um I think these people are losing grip on the narrative, which comes first, and eventually they'll lose their grip on power. And that's the funny thing at the end of the day, the power is perception. Like people only perceive that these people are powerful, but like you said, the power lies in the hands of the individual at the end of the day. You have the power to download a Bitcoin wallet and to demand payment of Bitcoin. You have power to get up off your ass and to shake your local rancher's hand and say, hey, I'm gonna buy might be from you instead of going to uh, the the large grocery store. You have the power to say, "Hey, I'm the use Nostra over Twitter." You have the power to basically say, "Fuck you!" And, like voice your opinion. Say, "I'm not doing this anymore. I'm mad as hell, and I'm simply not going to do this anymore." Uh, I have the power to opt in 
to these other ways of living my life and I'm going to do that. And obviously there is some personal responsibility uh, on the individual at the end of the day, but I think more and more are taking that personal responsibility, recognizing that they need to do it and taking it into their own hands. hundred percent. Like they're, but does it worry you? And I think you actually, you mentioned the percentage of people you said around 20% of people and you know, my, my girlfriend, like she's been with me and, you know, she's a Bitcoiner just by proximity and just being close to me and whatever. And, you know, she has Bitcoin, she stores Bitcoin, whatever, but you know, she, she's, you know, her mind's at another place. And it, I, I, I always love her opinion because it's a non-biased opinion. You know, me and you are in the trenches fighting the good fight. You know, we put our heart and soul into what we do. And she said the most intuitive comment and I think it was so true. She's like, Nico, this is great. Sound money. This is amazing. I get it. This is, this is great. You know, write down 24 words, theoretically store millions, you know, billions, trillions. She's like, Nico, but frankly, I think people are too stupid. And I was like, and I thought about that and I'm like, man, that is, cause think about all the, all the convenience that people like, like Marty, do you think that if someone had a choice and you know, they weren't educated on the matter, they had a choice between, you know, slightly inconvenient freedom and convenient, convenient slavery, which are CBDCs, you could make a pretty big bet that a big percentage of people are just going to be like, sign me up. You know, you made the case that, you know, <coughs> excuse me, that CBDCs, probably not going to happen in, in the United States because, you know, the, the, the large influence of the commercial banks, but you get what I'm trying to say, right? That you could bet or you can make a pretty, you know, strong assumption that there's going to be a percentage of people that are just not going to opt out of state money. Do you, do you, co do you come from the school of thought where it's like, it doesn't matter? You know, Svetsky wrote that, that article where it's like, we are the remnant, you know, the masses don't matter. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? I like that article um, and the idea of the remnant, but I think the CBDC world would be extremely more inconvenient, right? Like if you eat too much meat one month and you go to the grocery store and you can't buy a steak because you've, you've exhausted your, your carbon rations in the CBDC world, that's inconvenient. It's much like the, the hurdle to downloading Bitcoin. That's another thing too. That's and I think it's a disservice Bitcoiners do to themselves. Yes, Bitcoin comes with extreme ownership and responsibility and securing a seed phrase and a Bitcoin wallet um, is a new action that people need to get comfortable with. But it's not that hard. Like you literally download an app and write down some words. It's not that inconvenient. And when you juxtapose it with the inconvenience about of uh, being able to do what you want to do, whether it be buy a steak or buy a plane ticket to go visit a family member, like that is a much more inconvenient future than in a world with a Bitcoin standard. It's much more convenient to have control of your money and be able to buy what you want instead of having the government say, no, you can't do this today. No, I think in my, I, I do, Maybe I go back and forth with it. Like, and I have historically, like, yeah, most people are dumb. 
they're not going to get it. They're just going to follow the state and do whatever they tell them. But again, like I think going back to like fourth turning, uh, collapse in confidence, I think we do live in this special moment in time where you have this perfect combination of, of, of things, with the degradation of the money, the uh, fragility of the financial system, the, uh, the distrust in federal government and politicians. It's all coalescing in this moment right now where I'm at, again, maybe I'm naive, maybe well, I'm stupid, but I am optimistic that the, uh, the tides are turning and people have been pushed too far to the edge and they're going to begin pushing back. And if you look at human history, we have more tools than ever to push back the double-edged sword. Yes, the digital world and everything that's been built up uh, by the state and technocrats, it can be extremely restrictive. It can cattle herd you into this digital panopticon, but we also have the open source technologies that could lead us to freedom. Um, and I think, again, going back to convenience versus inconvenience, I, I would argue that the CBDC world will be extremely more inconvenient than in a world on a Bitcoin standard. Yes, you may have to write down and secure some words, but I think given the option between that and not being able to buy a stake when you want to, I think people will, will figure out how to write down and secure those words. Interesting. So, so you, you make the argument that the vast majority of people, if pushed to a certain extreme, would <laughs> it, it, like it's so ridiculous like, if you think about it like what is what is harder opening a bank account nowadays or writing down 24 words right like i, I would make the argument that opening a bank account is a hundred times more difficult than writing down 24 words um I, I i guess maybe i don't you know the the matrix analogy fits best right um it's so cliche bringing it up during a bitcoin uh podcast but you know, the, the scene where it's like Neo after a certain age, we just don't wake people up because they've been their their minds can't handle that they've been in the matrix for so long. And I use that analogy to describe that, you know, specifically like if, if I'm talking like about my parents, for example, right? Uh yeah, my mom been holding Bitcoin for as long as I have, you know, twenty sixteen, right? But um if I tell her mom, you know, send me some Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So maybe for the younger generations, I would say, and I'm, again, it's not black and white, of course, but I think that there is going to be a percentage of people that maybe they, they don't, they, they're not going to have the technical capability or technical know-how specifically the generation that that isn't internet native. Like it's very easy for me and you to say this, Marty, because of our because of our ages, right? We we are millennials. We we kind of grew up with the internet, but someone older, right, it might be a little bit more difficult. You could say. Is it though? If they can send wires. No, it's not. It's it's totally not. That's right. right. Yeah. No, but yeah, and, no, it's all, uh, it all comes back to storytelling, right? Like you can tell the better story, the more hopeful story, and that's what I think plays to our advantage, like. Bitcoiners, the incredible vision of the future that is hopeful, that is optimistic, that includes freedom and um, sovereignty, particularly with your money, but then that seeps into 
other points of your life and then you just look at who we're up against and they're painting a future of not owning anything not owning anything uh, the world's going to end from climate change one of these days it's been happening for decades but don't worry next year it's going to happen and again i think people just get worn out and over time is the ux around and that's the other thing i think the ux around receiving and sending bitcoin and backing up bitcoin is going to get significantly better as well um so yeah so maybe hard today to ask your mom like hey send me send me two million sats but i think especially what i'm seeing right now from the 1031 perspective there's an incredible amount of talent uh engineering talent and design talent that is coming to build on bitcoin that'll abstract a lot of the perceived complexities that that are involved with setting and receiving bitcoin i agree all right marty before we wrap it up i think one last question and really i think a lot of people i you know not the people that have been advocating for you know dollar cost average you know of course odell's famous line stay humble stack sats but I think a lot of people were anticipating, you know, 100K Bitcoin last cycle. You know, I, I come from the mining backgrounds. I, 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 you know, I come from the angle of I think that the CCP banned Bitcoin mining right in the middle of the bull run. You know, that inevitably led to the, you know, the hash rate dropping. Of course, a lot of miners had to dump a lot of coin, you know, to pay for the relocation of a lot of those miners. And but we didn't hit 100K Bitcoin, right? I think we hit what was the max? It was like 69 or something. Um, what was your person, were you let down in that? Um, are we looking into a future where, you know, Bitcoin isn't going to, of course, I don't believe that it's going up forever, Laura, but you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do, do you, you know, is, is the party over, so to speak? No, no, I've been around since 2013. I bought the Pico top of that cycle around like $1,400. And watched it drop down to like 180 bucks over the, the course of 2014, 2015. And that was a significantly worse bear market. I mean, I wasn't counting 100,000 out of the picture when we were in that last bull market, but it doesn't surprise me at all that it didn't get there. And I mean, if you look at it, we only dumped, I believe, like 77% from that all time high in the lows that we hit late last year. Uh, which isn't the worst drawdown that Bitcoin seen throughout its history. I just think this is par for the course when you compare it to past cycles. Again, going back to what I just said, like the talent that's dedicated to actually building out infrastructure, whether it be mining at the protocol level, uh, on the Lightning Network, we'll have sediments coming to market here soon. Like, I don't think the fundamentals have never been stronger uh, in terms of distribution of hash rate, distribution of node operators, development talent dedicated to, to building on the network, new ideas, coming it's as lively as it's ever been. And it seems like it's accelerating. Um, one part of the world that gives me extreme hope is developing markets that have recognized Bitcoin's utility and are moving quite aggressively to, to build on top of it. So yeah. Didn't hit 100K. I still have laser eyes. Um, I will be keeping them on until we hit 100K. But no, then it's a, I 
wouldn't have been surprised if we had 100k, but I'm not surprised that we didn't either. Which is just par for the course with these cycles. Um, yeah, once you go through a few, you become pretty hard, and you just come to expect the unexpected. You, you never know what it's going to do. Just keep keep building, keep stacking, keep um, evangelizing, and helping educate people about why this is important and how it can help their lives. And yeah, I think that's most important thing going back to like storytelling you just have to continue telling a better story especially considering the, the global economic uh and geopolitical background um i think people are looking for a reason to be hopeful and optimistic for the future and bitcoin is one of the few areas that really paints that that future and we just need to begin getting that story out there telling it and slowly but surely i think more and more people We'll be coming to adopt Bitcoin. Amen. Well, Mr. Marty Bent, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I, I have to ask this out of every guest that where can people find you and what are you working <laughs> on nowadays? Yeah, at Marty Bent on Twitter, uh, tftc.io is where you can find the newsletter, the TFTC interview uh, series. Obviously, we do I do rabbit hole recap every Thursday almost every once a week with Matt O'Dell, um, which is uh, a lot of fun. We've been doing that for five years. And then, yeah, beyond that, uh, I'm co-founder of Standard Bitcoin, which is uh, a mining company. We, a lot of our hash rate is in Tennessee. Um, we're doing some cool things there uh, to help uh, stabilize the grid in rural areas. And then uh, 1031, partner at 1031, we're a Bitcoin-focused uh, venture capital firm looking to support Bitcoin-only companies and Bitcoiners who are building out the infrastructure and um, user experience that we talked about uh, during this conversation. Beautiful. Thank you, Marty, for, for joining us. Appreciate it. Opti, please make me full screen since Restream booted me out of the producer seat. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Simply Bitcoin Live. Shout out to Marty. This was really special to me, and I was really looking forward to this for, for a long time. Uh, Marty and Marty and Matt, big inspiration, uh, really pioneers in the uh, Bitcoin c content creation field. Uh, when they started, there was really nothing there. So uh, shout, out to, shout out to Marty for coming on. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow, regular episode of Simply Bitcoin Live, 12.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you guys later. Opti, wrap it up, my friend.